Welcome back to Red Arrow Camp's Sunday Chapel Talks. This week, we're going to listen to Drew's talk titled The Brotherhood of the Rope, which he gave back in 2018. This is a fantastic chapel talk that really shows the value of the brotherhood that we have at Red Arrow. Now sit back, imagine those beautiful mornings on Trout Lake, and enjoy. On May 29, 1953, Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay became the first men to reach the highest point of land on the planet by summiting Mount Everest and immediately became the two most famous climbers in history. For the rest of their lives, Hillary and Norgay were adamant that neither could have reached the summit without the help of the other. The weeks spent together on the mountain formed a bond strong enough to allow them to selflessly lend each other the support necessary to complete the climb, both physical support in aiding each other up the most difficult pitches and emotional by giving each other the courage to continue traveling deeper into the dangerous unknown. They were bound by what mountaineers call the brotherhood of the rope. Two men, harnesses tied together by a rope very similar to the one we use to belay each other on the climbing wall of the ropes course, so that if one man slips and begins to tumble down the mountain, the other has a chance to take his climbing axe, plunge it into the ice, lay on top of it, and pray he has the strength to hold on and stop the fall. This man is motivated to put every ounce of strength into stopping his partner's fall, for if he cannot hold on when the rope between them becomes taunt, he will join his partner in a free fall down the mountain. Think about that for a moment. Consider how much faith it would take to put so much trust in another person. Think about the bond needed to have that trust and how much stronger that bond must be after that trust is granted. News of Hillary and Norgay's accomplishment quickly spread by newspaper and television to all corners of the globe. They were celebrated as heroes in all the world's major cities. But their achievement was also celebrated by a small group of climbers less than 1,000 miles away, huddled around a radio in a small tent on the slopes of the second highest peak in the world on their own attempt of a dangerous and daring first ascent. Mount Albert at 14,439 feet is the highest mountain in Colorado. It's one of the best ski descents in the state, but to hike to the summit and back in the summer takes us only a single long day. Mount Whitney, at 14,500 feet is the highest mountain in the continental United States. It's also a day hike and is summited by thousands of people every year. Denali in Alaska is the highest peak in North America at 20,300 feet. And like Everest, it is climbed expedition style over several weeks with climbers venturing from base camp up the mountain to establish smaller camps to which they can slowly shuttle food and equipment while also allowing their bodies to adjust to the extreme altitudes they will face on the climb. Once the highest camp has been established, the strongest climbers in the team will spend one night at the high camp before making a push for the summit. Mount Everest, at over 29,000 feet, so more than twice the height of Mount Albert or Mount Whitney, is one of only 14 8,000 meter peaks in the world. And once Hillary and Norgay stepped on the summit, only one of those mountains remained unclimbed. Deep in the Karakoram Range along the border of Pakistan and China, Charlie Houston and a small team of climbers listened excitedly to the news of the successful Everest climb from a tent on the slopes of K2, eager to conquer the second highest peak in the world and the last 8,000 meter unclimbed peak. Little did they know 
they would soon put the concept of the brotherhood of the rope to a far more consequential test than any climbers that had come before them. Charlie Houston had been to K2 once before, in 1938, as the leader of the second ever attempt to climb what he would later call the Savage Mountain. On top of the notoriously difficult technical climbing on K2, the mountain lies in a geographical location that gener generates extreme and sudden storms that are nearly impossible to anticipate. To this day, nearly 40% of all climbers who even attempt to climb K2 perish on its slope. Uh, though his 1938 expedition failed to reach the mountain's summit, Houston believed that he had scouted a route that would ultimately be successful. He would have to wait until the end of World War II, then for a resolution to Pakistan's separation from India in 1949 to make his attempt. But as soon as he could acquire a climbing permit from the new Pakistani government, he began compiling a team of climbers to travel with him to the Karakoram. His first selection was easy. Bob Bates was his primary climbing partner before the war. They served together in the army, fortifying an already unbreakable bond. They were best friends and together would lead the, lead the expedition to K2. They solicited applications throughout the mountaineering community and were inundated with replies by hundreds of climbers eager to take on what was considered an unclimbable mountain. Unlike most expeditions, however, Houston and Bates were not seeking out the most talented, accomplished climbers with a long list of first ascents and challenging climbs. In fact, talented climbers with mercurial, volatile personalities were outright rejected. Houston learned on his first attempt of K2 that this mountain was different from all others he or anyone else had ever climbed. The difficulty and danger of the ascent necessitated a different type of team than those that were typical in mountaineering at that time. As he would later write, Charlie Houston decided to value the ability to get along and work together above technical skill and ability. So not the best climbers, not the best athletes, but men of the highest character in which they could entrust each other's lives. They selected Dee Molinar, a strong young climber from Colorado Springs, Bob Craig, a ski instructor from Aspen, Colorado, George Bell, a physics professor at Cornell University, Art Gilkey, a geologist from Iowa, Pete Schoening, a chemical engineer from the Pacific Northwest, and Tony Strether, a British transport officer who had spent years in India, Pakistan, and Nepal. So eight men from different places with very diverse backgrounds. And when they arrived in the Karakoram, all the climbers except for Houston and Bates were complete strangers, meeting only for the first time as they began the 20-day hike to the last major settlement they would see before ascending to base camp. Bob Craig later wrote of that hike. As we approached our mountain, the magic cement that binds men together, the qualities that make unbreakable friendships began to form. Unconsciously and imperceptibly, we were forming a team. If we had not, it is probable that most of us would not have survived the troubles we were about to face. All eight men took turns leading the climbing as they advanced from base camp to camp one then camps two and three, where they were forced to spend three days waiting out a major storm. Then, through perfect weather, they advanced rapidly over rock, snow, and ice through the most dangerous climbing in the world, reaching Camp 8 at over 25,000 feet on August 4th. Now within striking distance of the summit, climbing strongly and fully acclimated to the extreme elevation, morale was high. Charlie Houston wrote in his journal that day, there are no guarantees in the mountains, but our camaraderie and strength are breeding incredible confidence in our eventual and perhaps inevitable success. 
But on the morning of August 5th, a storm swept across the Karakoram, and the relentless wind and snow kept the men in their tents for seven straight days. On August 6th, the wind was so strong that it tore apart the tent shared by Charlie Houston and George Bell, forcing them to flee to other tents. From then on, two of the tents meant to only hold two men each would have to hold three. On August 7th, the skies cleared briefly, long enough for the team to emerge, stretch their cramped muscles, and gaze up at the remaining climb. While discussing the next pitch that they would ascend, Art Gilkey suddenly collapsed in the snow. As he was carried to the nearest tent, K2's temperamental weather flared up again, and the wind and snow once again swept across the mountain. It's just my leg, Gilkey told Charlie Houston once they were safely inside a tent. Houston examined his friend's leg and ankle and determined that he was suffering from blood clots, likely caused by days of inactivity while the team was waiting out the storm. These blood clots, near the summit of one of the highest mountains in the world, were seen by the team as a death sentence. Evacuation at that altitude uh, was considered impossible on any mountain, let alone K2, the most dangerous and difficult climb in the world. And as Bob Craig had written in his diary just days earlier, bringing an injured man from, down from K2 would be an extremely difficult, if not impossible, task. By August 9th, the storm was raging stronger than it had all week, and Art Gilkey had developed a cough, indicating that the blood clots had migrated to his lungs. Knowing his situation was dire, Gilkey repeatedly asked the team to leave him and continue to the summit. They refused to leave their brother behind, bound to him as they were by the magic cement formed during the early stages of the climb. As Charlie Houston later wrote, we would never leave Art. None of us had even considered it. Though we hadn't known him long, he was our brother. But we couldn't move in the storm. In fact, we couldn't even move ourselves. Though the storm had not lessened by the morning of August 10th, Charlie Houston demanded they evacuate their crippled friend, no matter the conditions, no matter the danger. If we wait until tomorrow, he told his team, it will be too late. Knowing the danger and low chance of success, the men eagerly agreed. As they wrapped Gilkey in as many sleeping bags as they could fit on his body, he again pleaded with them to leave him behind, attempt the summit as they planned, and return to base camp without him. But no one on the team would accept his pleas. They attached five ropes to their makeshift gurney and ran the ropes to five separate climbers, two above, one below, and one to either side of their injured friend. The remaining teammates descended ahead of the group, scouting the best route they could through the blowing snow. In this web of rope, the man be men began their descent, inches at a time, through deep, fresh snow spread out across the steep slope, risking their lives with every step to save the friend who they knew was almost certain to die on the mountain, abandoning their own dreams of glory on the summit. Progress was slow and route finding nearly impossible, but somehow they managed to descend nearly 1,000 feet before George Bell stepped onto windswept ice, slipped, lost his footing, and began plummeting down the mountain. As the rope linking him to the web connected to Art Gilkey came tight, the remaining climbers, one by one, were plucked from their feet and began to tumble out of control down the mountain. Pete Schoening, one of the two climbers belaying Gilkey from above, and the highest man on the mountain that day, heard the cries of his teammates as they fell. And though he couldn't see any of them through the storm, he instinctively plunged his ice, axe into the ice, laid on top of it, and held on as tightly as he could. His rope, connecting to the web, was the last to grow taunt. And somehow, miraculously, he was able to hold on and stop the fall of his five teammates. One by one, they each regained purchase on the slope, slackening the rope tied to Shoning, 
who was able to find Gilkey in the snow and drag him to a small ledge where he tied his friend to an axe plunged into the snow and ice. Leave me, Gilkey pleaded once more as Shoning walked away to attend to the cuts, bruises, and broken bones of his fallen teammates. As the team reassembled, the snow let up and the wind began to die down as they slowly made their way back to the ledge where Gilkey had been tied to the axe. To their surprise, the axe was still in the ground and there was still a section of rope attached to it. But the other end of the rope was flapping in the wind and their comrade was nowhere to be seen. Debate still rages in the mountaineering community as to whether Gilkey was swept away in an avalanche or perhaps fearing the burden of his rescue would lead to the death of his brothers, pulled, off his, pulled out his knife and cut the rope. The truth will never, never be known. Devastated, the remaining climbers were able to descend without the impossible task of evacuating their friend. Through now clearing weather, back to base camp, an airport, and finally home to the United States. Though they'd only known each other a few weeks, the brotherhood of the rope that had bound these men kept them together for the rest of their lives. Eight men from different places with diverse backgrounds brought together for a short period of time to accomplish an impossible task. Does it sound familiar? Campers, will you approach this summer with your cabin mates as the 1953 K2 team approached their climb, valuing the ability to get along above all else while sacrificing your own comfort, what is easy and convenient for you to do what is right to help your teammates this summer? Will you be bound to your cabin mates by the brotherhood of the rope? Counselors, will you lead your campers as Charlie Houston led his team, inspiring them to do the impossible by leading from the front all day, every day, all summer long. Every summer at Rodero is an expedition with the goal of accomplishing the impossible. And everyone in this room is an essential part of that expedition team. Though we are not physically roped to one another, everything we do this summer affects everyone around us. Though the rope is merely imaginary, we are all bound. We will climb together, higher together, and accomplish more this summer than any of us ever could do as individuals. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's Chapel Talk. Special thanks for Drew Mueller for this week's talk. If you want more content from Red Arrow Camp, be sure to go to www.redarrowcamp.com. We'll see you soon.